0: Welcome to the world of fiction, where we're lying, but that's okay. One prepared host, two neurodivergent nerds, two authors dig deeper into the lies that expose truths. If you're a fan of fiction with a curious mind, tune in each week for discussions on speculative worlds, fandom, the industry, and creating. Let's talk about my debut novel, The Weight of Gold. I'm your prepared host, Jay Scarrity.
1: And I'm the host who's winging it, Ludlow Adams.
0: For our new listeners out there, every week I choose and prepare a topic because I'm a researcher and a planner.
1: And I find out the topic a half an hour before because I'm an improviser and good on my feet.
0: Let's get into it. Um, to be fair, like uh, you kind of knew this topic was coming up because or maybe you'd forgotten. I <laughs> forgot. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cause I had talked to you about it probably months ago about doing this. Um, but today I'm going to, I'm going to do a reading of a chapter from my book that comes out today, March 8th. So it is out as of when this podcast will be uploaded. Um, and we'll we'll just talk a little bit about behind the scenes because uh, Ludlow has been part of this process from um, not quite the beginning, but in really early stages. So um, yeah, shameless plug for my book here. <laughs> Thank you guys for ahead of time for, for listening. Um, just getting these words out into the world means a lot to me. Um, so what I'm going to read today is chapter 15 which might seem surprising because it's pretty, not quite halfway, but it's pretty in the middle of the book. Um, There's a very specific reason I chose this one, which we'll, we'll talk about. Eliza said, it was a good idea to be around other moms. God, I hated mommy group. Everyone bragged about their kids hitting milestones early. Some of the babies Mark's age were already walking along furniture. There were a couple other moms like me showing up in sweatpants and old baggy t-shirts, no makeup and hair and knots, but all the other moms came in expensive yoga pants and smoothed out ponytails at best, and at worst, high heels and freshly curled beach waves. One week, some of the moms started talking about careers they left, and after that, there were two distinct cliques in mommy group, the moms returning to work and the moms staying home. But even among my fellow working moms, I felt like an outsider. They consistently complained about how much they wished they could stay home and how they were only working because they couldn't afford to live on one income. There must have been something wrong with me not feeling the same way. Even if Danny and I could afford for me to stay home indefinitely, I wouldn't want to. I didn't say that, though. I worried it would look like I didn't love my kids as much. My anxiety over leaving Mark had subsided with the medication and was replaced by a need to be alone. Right now, I was only working on the weekends and a couple evenings a week, but I loved the break from the house. And the break from Mark, honestly. Eliza said that was normal and even healthy, but I didn't dare reveal my true feelings to the other moms. I wanted to feel like a real human being, outside of being a mom. And so many of the other moms there had already had a chance to have a career. Most were 10 years or so older than me, with years of life experiences already lived. I had decided so young that I wanted more than anything in the world to have kids. I worried now that I jumped the gun. What experiences might I have had if we'd waited before getting pregnant the first time, when my world shattered and I became so much older than my age? I used to feel my age. I remember high school, posting along the drive that went past our house, my best friend at the wheel, while I sat in the passenger seat holding a long neon tube of bubbles. The windows had been rolled all the way down, and the radio turned all the way up. I dipped the bumble wand, pumping it up and down before sticking it out the window. The wind around the car blew through the wand, bubbles streaming next to us. Most of them popped almost immediately, but some floated in the reflection of the side mirror drifting away towards the treetops. We sang at the top of our lungs, but were still drowned out by the radio. Wind stung my eyes and made them water. If I could escape and recreate a place that's my own world, and I could be your favorite girl. My phone rang. I didn't recognize the number, so I ignored it. I didn't mean for you to get hurt. Voicemail. I turned the radio down and listened. One hand held my BlackBerry phone and the other the neon tube, bubble solution dripping onto my fingers. Who is it? She glanced at me, and when she saw my eyes, she rolled up the windows and silenced the radio, mid-sweet escape. I need to go to the hospital, I said. I remember that day, clearer than any other. In the hospital, I'd found my grandparents waiting for me. They didn't want me to see her like that, but I'd insisted. She was lying in a hospital bed, asleep. Police officer stood nearby, writing on a clipboard. Grandpa stood next to him and watched what he wrote. She was hooked up to an IV, her arm bandaged from wrist to elbow, and the doctor explained that she would need a blood transfusion. I don't understand, I'd said to Grandpa. What happened? Grandma had answered before he could. She had an accident in the kitchen. Her tone warned me not to push the matter further. The doctors ignored me after that, speaking only to my grandparents, their eyes shifted in my direction as they lowered their voices to whispers. Grandma remained silent. Grandpa would nod and utter thank yous. I slipped past the curtain that gave the ER pods some semblance of privacy and watered down a dead-end hallway with vending machines and a family bathroom. I waited until the voices of some nurses in the adjoining hallway faded, then pulled out my BlackBerry, hitting speed dial 3 for my brother. He'd been across the country in California for college. Grandma's not telling me what happened, I told him in hushed tones. Of course she isn't, but it's obvious anyway. Right, I said, drawing out the vowel. I shuffled my feet. Wait, there was surprise in his voice. They still haven't told you? I froze in place, my heart falling into my stomach. A million thoughts ran through my head, like a list of catastrophic headlines on a news site. Was she sick? Dying? Dying? It is so not my job to tell you this, he continued uneasily. But she did this to herself, Elle. She cut herself. It wasn't until she'd said it out, he'd said it out loud that I realized I'd always known. Deep down, my mom was depressed. Not just depressed. Suicidal. She told you she's depressed, but not me? He sighed, and his breath crackled in the phone. No, Grandpa told me. A few years ago. They're probably just trying to protect you, Elle. When I was little, my mom had been infallible in my eyes. She was the kick-ass single mom like in the movies. But when it stared me in the face, I refused to admit to her having any kind of weakness. That day changed everything. I started to think of my childhood differently. The weeks she'd spent in bed all day every day. The nights she'd come home drunk. The looks exchanged between my grandparents. She'd been lying to me all this time. She was always telling me my mental illnesses were nothing to be ashamed of and yet she had kept her own from me. What had angered me the most was that her hypocrisy. A couple years before that hospital trip, she had coaxed my secret darkness out of me. I was sitting on my bed after school, instant messaging my best friend on my laptop. She had stood in the doorway, holding a book against her chest. What? He stepped cautiously into the room. Hey. You're being weird, Mom. Sorry. He sat down on the bed, placing the book on the comforter in front of me. It was my copy of the bell jar. I set my laptop aside. It's beautiful. She searched my eyes. My breathing sounded too loud. Sad, too. Her eyes continued to search. I knew she wasn't talking about Sylvia Plath's words. Like so many of my other books, I had written in the margins of the bell jar's pages, The words I wrote in Plath's only novel were in a similar tone as her story contained in its pages. I had written poems, melancholy poems. It's okay to feel overwhelming sadness sometimes, to be lonely. You can talk to me about it. I shrugged. She breathed in deep. It's okay if you can't talk to me. We can get someone else for you to talk to. What a shrink, I gawked. Her lips bent in a sort of grimace. A therapist, yes. There's no shame in getting help, baby. I turned away and stared at my knees, tucked up against my chest. I'll let you think about it. She kissed my head, then left the room. She'd found me, my first therapist. She drove me to all my sessions. Grandfather paid for them. He had insisted. I later found out he'd told her it's what he wished he'd done for her when she was my age. My mom didn't realize... What my mom didn't realize was the lesson she had taught me inadvertently. She taught me that moms do everything for their children, and nothing for themselves. That moms aren't allowed to struggle. They have to keep it hidden. Now that I was a mom myself, I was even more upset with her. Not for the self-harm or even the essential ending of my childhood. I was upset with her because to this day, she never admitted to me that she was ever sick. She pretended that day in the hospital had never happened. Before becoming a mom, I'd taken her advice. I hadn't been ashamed of my struggles. The world was growing more accepting of my neurology, more open about anxiety and depression. Postpartum OCD? No one talked about that. And ingrained deep in my psyche was the image of a mother who did not allow weakness in herself, who tried to hide her darkness away so that it never touched her children. I hated myself for being weak. I would stare in my baby's face and loathe the darkness inside me that threatened his perfect life. I'm 25 now, but I don't feel it. I feel much older, my youth slipping between my fingers like fine sand. My peers are always posting online, posing in rave outfits, sequined dresses holding elaborate cocktails at nightclubs, or on beaches in Mexico in bik- bikini bottoms cut high above their hips, with waif-like waists and pleasantly round asses featured in the most flattering angles. My Friday nights involved poopy diapers, reruns of Gossip Girl, and crashing in bed by nine. The days were lonely when Daisy, my Miss Maudie, was too tired to stop by. On those days, I was left alone with Mark and with my thoughts. Eliza had taught me to visualize my intrusive thoughts, to play them out and determine what I would do in the worst-case scenario. It was a way to turn the intrusions around into something empowering. It's like practice. If you practice the worst-case scenario, you'll feel more in control. I imagined that my mental illness would make Mark resent me. that He'd grow up waiting for the day he could leave home. But I wasn't even sure what I wished my own mom had done differently. What I wanted was my childhood back, and that was impossible. How would I make sure I didn't rob Mark of his childhood? visualization didn't work so well with this one. I was laying in bed, Mark next to me, watching cartoons on my phone, with the routine we'd picked up when I was too tired to do anything. I watched him, watching the screen. This wasn't what I had imagined when I pictured myself as a mom. In college, my roommates used to joke about how I'd be the first to have kids, how I'd make my own organic baby food and do all the mommy and me classes and keep an immaculate house. They were right about me being the first to become a mom, but the rest was bullshit. I couldn't blame them for the expectations. I was always an overachiever and a perfectionist. I was one of those kids who did the extra credit even though I already had an A. I never would have imagined myself like this. In mommy group, I felt like the at-risk dropout, the one just trying to get a passing grade. I reached over and pulled Mark to me. His eyelids were fluttering. I turned off the nursery rhyme show, playing on my phone, and wrapped him against me in his blanket. I felt his breathing, rise and fall of his little body, pressed against my chest. His eyes closed and his breathing slowed. The gush of warm air from his nose against my cheek calmed me. I relaxed, knowing that in my arms he was safe. Maybe I wasn't making him baby food from scratch or killing it at mommy group, but here he was, breathing in my arms. He was alive, and I of all people knew not to take that for granted. All right. (laughs) I can Um, only imagine
1: what it's like to be a parent, and a mom especially.
0: Yeah. um, Thanks for for bearing with my narration there. I'm not a natural narrator, um, and I, you know, stumbled on a, a few words and Hopefully the meaning was still clear. Uh, But I chose this passage because it's very thematic um, for the entire book, which is this idea of being a mom with a mental illness and how that affects a child. And when you were a child who was affected by that, who had a parent who was mentally ill and tried to um, fight through it on their own, or sometimes didn't cope in the healthiest of ways, how that affects you as a child. And then when you become a parent, that worry and that fear that you're going to rob your kid of their childhood is, it's a very real one. Um, And, and, and the weight of gold deals with a lot of those, those questions and those um, struggles that moms face.
1: Yeah. I'm terrified of having kids because of my mental health package and passing that on. Mm -hmm. And, and so that part of it is always like, Oh yeah, I can see that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I recognize that. Mm -hmm. So back when I read it, which was what, like a year ago now or something, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's been a bit. Yeah. Um, So Ludlow and I, have been part of a a writing group where we shared our writing with each other. And, um, it's what's called alpha readers, which is before beta readers when you're still working on development and you're still doing the actual writing. Um, and, and so Ludlow got to read a lot of this book even before the beta version. Yeah. Um, and things have changed since the beta version too. So yeah. the your copy that you get will be even, you know, a, a different read this time around than it was I, before.
1: I think if things don't change in the beta version, either you nailed it, which is not very likely. Like everybody yeah. talks about having to make changes, you know, Brandon, Neil, everybody. Um yeah. you either nailed it or you think you nailed it. And the think you nailed it is really dangerous. <laughs> so
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the whole point for beta read is to is to see if what you've written has come across the way it was intended, and ninety nine times out of a hundred, it, it it doesn't come across the way that you intend. Yeah. Um. And authors have to go back and make changes after the beta read. Um. So yeah, mine mine did change. Um. But the themes are the same, and uh. The the weeks where we uh, workshopped my writing for the weight of gold brought up a lot of conversations about mental health and some of those different issues that that come along with it and and I my hope is that um, it's not just moms and and women that will relate but like you said you you're thinking about having kids someday and and that fear of what your mental health um, would do and and how that would work I, I hope that everyone can relate yeah to some point to some extent with this
1: I think any parent who is who's frightened for their child uh, specifically around themselves being a good parent I think mm-hmm. everybody who's dealing with that is going to get something from the book mm-hmm. um, so yeah and then you know dealing with Gosh, trauma kind of or, you know, underlying issues that you've been dealing with since you were a kid and things along yeah. those lines. It's it's good. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to reading it now and then I'm looking forward to to hearing what other people uh, feel about it. So, yeah, I'm excited.
0: Yeah. And um, one of the questions that comes up a lot for me. <laughs> sorry. It's strep throat last week, so my voice is kind of giving out on me a little bit um after reading all of that um so if you if you can hear that strain in my voice, that's where that's coming from. It's not that I'm about to cry or anything <laughs>
1: um
0: <laughs> although I have cried many times while uh writing and revising this book um, um a lot of the the questions that I get about this is how much of it is inspired by my own life. And this particular character, Eleanor, um, is uh, very much a reflection of a lot of aspects of my experience with early motherhood. Um, None of it's an exact thing. It's not that I wrote myself as a character into the novel. Um, But I wanted this to be really authentic and in order to do that i had to draw from real experience yeah. um and from real lived experiences of of real women um nothing specific but just generally things that women struggle with um like miscarriage and uh that feeling of my mental health is going to to ruin my my kids childhood um those kinds of feelings and sentiments and experiences that a lot of women have in common with each other in this particular chapter um the the drive with the bubbles out the window that is something that I used to do with my best friend in high school we would drive along this uh big stretch of road that was called Juanita Drive um in our our town growing up and we would get these bubble wands at the dollar store, like the big, I'm sure people know what I'm talking about. The big, like two foot long neon tubes of bubbles. And she would drive and I would hang my arm out the window and bubbles would blow. And, um, I just remember feeling so in the moment, uh, and feeling young and and free in those moments. And, um, That was one of the, uh, common things that we would do in high school that I think back fondly on and nostalgically on, of you know, back then when life was so much simpler and I wasn't worried about these things and I felt young, I felt like a teenager. Um, and after I had my son, I didn't feel like someone in their early twenties anymore. It, it made me grow up really quick. Um. And there's, you know, there's some loss there. There's a loss of independence and loss of being young and free and being able to have experiences. Um, and I, I don't regret having kids as young as I did because of of health reasons. If I hadn't had kids as young as I did, then I wouldn't have my kids. Um, so I, I don't regret it. But I. I would encourage my own children to wait and and to experience life in youth to experience their twenties um, as a young person who, who doesn't have those same responsibilities and, and to be able to yeah. have adventures and feel young a little longer.
1: Yeah. That one's always a tough one. Um, you know, yeah. Like having kids when you're a little older is for the most part better for you and the kids and et cetera. Mm-hmm. And getting married a little older is actually better for the marriage and all these mm-hmm. things. And yet, you know, you've got people like, uh, you and your husband who, you know, have made it work and are doing a good job. Yeah. With it. So,
0: yeah, we have made it work and, and again, no, no regrets, but we both, you know, look back and and feel that loss of, of youth (laughs) and adventure in our, in our twenties. Um, and you know, it's, it's a cultural thing for sure, but we grew up in a, in a faith that very much encouraged marrying young and having kids right away. And we both, you know, followed what we were taught from a very young age was what you should do. And we feel differently about that now. Yeah than we did then um but we are very fortunate in that we before we got married we both experienced some pretty serious things that made us grow up pretty quickly so we were at a maturity level where it was a we we knew what life could do to you
1: yeah <laughs> and
0: we knew how how tough it can be and um he saw me at some really low points Um, before we were even dating when we were just friends and and knew what he was getting into so a lot of people say oh the first year of marriage is the hardest because you're getting used to being with another person and um, things happen and you see each other have to deal with hard things and and how the other person handles those things but uh, for us the first year of marriage was actually pretty easy yeah um compared to uh, the the growing pains we had as friends and while we were dating and then the growing pains when we became parents
1: now how long did the two of you date
0: not long (laughs) you'll be shocked um let's see we dated we dated for seven months before we got married oh wow Yeah. Shocking. Right. Um, originally we were intending to get married later. Um, and it's a funny story. Um, my dad was in grad school at the time and he was going to have a break from grad school in the summer. And originally we were thinking about getting married that the next winter, um, and my my mom said that if we decided to get married in the summer when my dad had a break that they would take care of everything with the the wedding and we jumped on that opportunity <laughs> to not have to <laughs> to have to worry about those things um and so my dad turned our church gym into this absolutely beautiful venue and um did all of this work himself because he had the time to um and yeah, it was, it was really fast though. And I, I was stressed. I had a cold sore on our wedding day because of all the stress mm-hmm. and I, my neck seized up and I couldn't move my head. And I had to see a chiropractor the day before our wedding. And oh gosh, it was, it was a lot and it was fast. Um, yeah. And we fell fast too. Um, which was absolutely part of it. Um, and it, and some of it was rash on my part, for sure. I had been in a, in an abusive relationship right before we started dating and, uh, he was, you know, my best friend through that. We were, we were best friends before we started seeing each other. And he was kind of my rock while I was going through that, um, that situation. And I you know jumped right back out of this abusive relationship into this new one and part of the reason for that is because he he was so safe mm. which was such a huge contrast and I I would talk to my mom on the phone about my best friend Max and I would say just feel so safe around him and for me because of of my childhood traumas um having a man that I feel safe with safe with and around is a really big deal um any kind of men In any sort of position of authority or power over me, whether that be how big they are, like their size or um, age or, you know, in an actual authority position in, you know, work, or wherever. uh, I I have a hard time feeling safe. And it was never like that with him. I always felt safe Mm -hmm. around Max, Um, despite the fact that he was older and taller and a bigger guy than me um which was unique and I think that I just jumped into that safety um and the way that he responded when he did see my worst breakdowns my my worst episodes uh spoke volumes and and I went for it Maybe a little rashly, but I did. And well, sometimes we both sit there and we're like, wow, we dodged a bullet that, that you know, we, we that rushed into this. Make and- makes
1: something in Weight of Gold make a lot more sense. Like, you know, at oh, least yeah. one of the characters is dealing with that kind of thing. And, and mm-hmm. anybody who's listening to this, you know, one of the reasons I'm not saying a whole lot about it is because I could end up spoiling something really quickly and easily. <laughs> so I'm I'm really not trying to do that because it it it's a really well written book and um, being able to discover these things is really a bit of a joy in it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that definitely mm-hmm. explains where that that theme of the book came from. Then,
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, that particular character, uh, that would be Lillian and she uh yeah there is there is lots of inspiration from my own life but there's also um it's a story that many women have have been through yeah um and i wanted i wanted those women to be seen for sure yeah yeah life is messy (laughs) and max and i are just really glad that um our our quick decisions as youth have turned out okay for us. Yeah. It's it's sad to, when we see that not be the case for a lot of other couples. Um and, and even, you know, couples who, who are older and mature and, and go into things with wide eyes wide open, it doesn't always work out. And yeah. it's also a reality. And I think destigmatizing divorce is a really important thing that's finally happening in our culture
1: yeah you know when we talk about like you know it's better for this group and things like that we're usually just talking about like numbers you know what's your chance of getting a divorce Mm -hmm. you know like the lowest divorce rate is among people who both both of the couples uh both members of the couple have like a bachelor's or more so, Interesting. you know, living in the South, a lot of times it's, you know, well, you're 19, how come you're not married with kids yet? Mm-hmm. And that just blows me away, because those are the people with the highest divorce rate, the most problems and the, the highest mm-hmm. domestic violence rates and some issues along yeah. those lines. And of course, you'll get people like, well, I never went through that. Well, okay, anecdotal evidence is, is, you know, typically an outlier. So sorry. Mm-hmm.
0: But yeah, <laughs>
1: this is, you know, these are looking at hard numbers.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, part of my novel takes place in the South, because some of those cultural elements of the South reflect um, some of the faith culture that I grew up in, Mm -hmm. even though I didn't grow up in the South. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was able to use that as a, you know, cultural location rather than a cultural faith. Yeah. To sort of reflect some of those ideas. Yeah. Um that I think are common among a lot of different faith cultures. It's not just the faith that I grew up in.
1: I have Catholic family. I mean, my, I grew up Catholic. And so there are times Mm. when I think people in my family are looking at me like, what in the world is going on here? And then Mm -hmm. my little brother, I think my brother and I are the two oldest members of our family to not be married with kids. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I, I, I mean, I think we're both straight. I know I am. And we're, well, I'm a little girl crazy is probably one of the issues. Um, but you know, I, when it comes to my brother, I just have no idea. Like he just really keeps himself to himself and doesn't really, doesn't mm-hmm. really talk about things like that. But it's it's really interesting when people are like, "Well, what's going on?" Nothing. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> I'm living my life. Like what? What do you mean? Yeah. What's going on? You know?
0: Yeah, and it's hard when you grow up in this idea of the the nuclear family being the end all be all like that is the goal and you get there. And yeah, that's a relationship is just the beginning.
1: Yeah.
0: And there's so much after that and you really gotta be ready for it. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, it, no one can really be totally ready for it, but um, there's something to be said for having lived independently for a little bit before you're, yeah you're living with another person by your side and um, and having some of those experiences on your own where you can really truly understand who you are as a person. Yeah. it's huge.
1: Yeah, I'm so grateful for the growth that I've done. Um, and I don't know that I would have mm-hmm. had the, the space to do that had I been with somebody. Definitely not if I'd had a kid. And I mm-hmm. think I would have been a much, much worse husband and father for that so mm-hmm.
0: yeah not i mean it's possible to, to do those do those things um when you're married and have kids but it is a lot harder yeah the road is a lot harder and um i i wouldn't recommend it if if you have the choice and and if you're in that place of life where you're like do i want to date seriously and find a spouse or do i want to Go explore more. If you're on the fence about it, my I would wholeheartedly recommend going and exploring and, and yeah. having adventures on your own first.
1: Yeah, there have been a couple of women in my life that have been like, yes, but it's never worked out um, for mm-hmm. different reasons. So
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'd I, I'd I rather
1: think, be single than with the wrong person. So
0: right, right. And I think that a lot of people who grow up. In these cultures that we've been discussing,
1: yeah,
0: for them they feel the opposite. They'd rather yeah. be you have be to be married with and have it not be perfect yeah. than yeah. than be single. You have to be and with somebody. Tough.
1: You have to have kids. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and it,
1: again, that's something else that at least one of your characters ends up dealing with in, mm-hmm. in your novel.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and and there's of course, obviously, nothing wrong with wanting those things um there's nothing you know I'm I'm the kind of feminist that's all about like you choose right yeah so you choose if you want to be a stay-at-home mom you choose if you want a career um I just think that the rhetoric in the past has been um placing the stay-at-home mom and starting a family early as the ideal yeah when I don't think that um, there necessarily should be an ideal placed above another.
1: It's, it's kind of interesting to me when people go on about that, like, you know, the woman shouldn't work outside of the home. And it's like, that's only been a thing for about 140 years. Mm -hmm. You know, before that, it was both, both spouses were working in a you know, in the bakery that they owned or they were both out on the farm. They were both doing these mm-hmm. things. They were both earning the income that the family needed. And so, yeah. you know, when when we go on and on about that, sometimes it's like, no, 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 what's going on right now is actually closer to the norm. It's the stuff that happened from like 1870 or 1880 until about 1950, 60. Mm-hmm. That's the abnormal part. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, it's it's kind of funny sometimes the way the way people have such selective memory when it comes to culture. <laughs>
0: um yeah, it's so true. I mean how else would you have survived back then? Yeah. I mean, you can't run a farm with just one person, no. especially before your kids are old enough to start helping. Yeah. And today we're starting to see some of that come back where It is very difficult to raise a family on one income nowadays, Yeah. Um, impossible for most families, which this chapter brings up. Like there's some women in this mom's mommy group who are like, I wish I could stay home, but I have to work because we can't survive on one income. And a lot of families are in that position. Yeah. and a lot of families are in the position where they have to work, but then that means they have to pay for daycare, and almost their their entire income goes to daycare, and uh, it, it's a real problem. Yeah. that our society's facing right now. Yeah. Um, and it's. And I just wanted to show that there's all kinds of moms out there. There's the ones who, who hate having to work and just miss their kids the whole time, yeah. and that's okay. And it's okay to to not wish you weren't working and wish you were with your kids. Um, It's also okay to love that you're working and that you get a break from your kids. That is completely okay too. And it's also okay to give up your career and stay home with your kids if that is what you truly want to be doing.
1: You know, I, I would say with the, with how well this is written, you could very easily substitute, um, you know, father for mother in this, in this conversation.
0: I hope so. so. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Yeah.
1: you know, there are guys who want to be able to work from home or just stay home with the kids. And, you know, if that works out in that relationship, mm-hmm. then great. If not, well, you know, still got to work at it. And I think when it comes to economics and, and how it affects, you know, health, mental health. Yeah, we're definitely mm-hmm. struggling with that. Um, it's yeah. getting worse and worse. And mm-hmm. it's it's been getting worse for the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um. So we we keep making decisions that benefit businesses rather than people, profit rather than people. I should say. So yeah, it's like we're friendly.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's the real, <laughs> that's the real attack on families right now. Yeah, it's not that women are working outside of the home and, and children are are spending a lot of time in daycares. That's not what's ruining families yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Um. What's ruining families is this focus on, on corporate and your uh, employers expecting their employees to place their jobs above their personal yeah. lives and their families. Um, yeah. And the, the fact that pay, excuse me, my, sorry, my voice is just struggling right now. <laughs> um, the fact that, that pay has not been reflecting the rise in, in cost of living. <sighs> yeah at all by any stretch of the imagination. And and that's that's the real problem. That's what's really attacking families is the fact that there's families where both parents have to work two full time jobs just to keep a roof over their head.
1: Yeah, it's uh it's a tough time. I I think what I've said to a lot of people has been that we're at a point in American history where it's harder than ever for the average family to make it. Maybe not ever, but it's it's a, it's really really hard for the average family to make it. Mm-hmm. But if somebody has a specific set of skills, it's easier than ever to become a millionaire, which is bizarre. Yeah.
0: It's it's so true. And and sometimes those skills aren't aren't very uh it's not skills like, you know, a, a doctor in a medical school, yeah. like primary care physicians don't actually make that much money. Yeah. It's not like it used to be where it's like, oh, you become a doctor and you've got it made and you're good to go. Yeah. Uh they're not, they're barely making enough to to live on while they're paying off those those med school loans. Yeah. Um it's really random skills like knowing how to work uh the system. Yeah. And and figuring out these loopholes yeah. in the system. Bizarre times.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's a really wild point to be a human being.
0: Um So, I just I want all of you to know that weight of gold is now available for purchase and I will have a link in the show notes um for you guys to to go do that. I really hope that um that people do read it. Uh I it's a passion. This was a passion project for me. Yeah. Um, getting these stories out there, stories that I think people need to be talking about more um, in regards to mental health and, and parenting and life in general. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and it is a difficult read. I will warn you that some of my beta readers said that it was, you know, it was hard. It was hard to read it. And some of the material is hard. Um, Not that but- it was
1: written badly at all reader yeah. um, listeners um it, <laughs> Emotionally. It's that. yeah it, it it's gonna hit you it's gonna hit you in the feels pretty hard and the other thing that yeah. i would say is it's absolutely worth picking up and reading um it was a really good book and i'm i'm actually looking forward to to reading the the brand new version that i've i haven't seen all the changes made so yeah
0: thank you i i really appreciate your support Luglo, through this entire process yeah. and um Shout out to to others to um Madison Coffing and um, Amy Salazar and uh, Max, of course, my husband, um, and just the amazing supporters out there who've helped make this happen. Um, this has been uh, I think five or six years now mm-hmm. in the making. And it's finally happening. And it's because of the amazing support that I've had um, from all of you. So thank you. Yeah. And I, I hope as as emotional and, and difficult it can be to read that the empowerment message, that was my goal for this project, is what people walk away with. Is that, uh, that hope, that glimmer of hope.
1: Yeah, makes sense.
0: All right. Well, that is our time for today. Thank you so much for listening.
1: <laughs> We've been your host, Ludlow Adams.
0: And Jay Scarity.
1: Thanks for tuning in. Join us next week for a new topic about the world of fiction. This has been We're Lying, But That's Okay. Big thanks to our listeners for your support. If you enjoyed this podcast,
0: leave us a review. Thank you to our one-man production and tech support team, Max Scarity, for making this podcast possible.